Hey, hello everybody. Before we will dive in, we wanted to learn a little bit more about you, the people. So uh, who of you is running ECS in production? It's not so bad. Uh, anybody running ECS not in production yet? Significantly less. And since we have so many, I don't ask who's running stuff in Docker containers. So instead, let's dive in. <laughs> So my name is Ralph Mueller. I am an online architect on For Honor, and I'm here with my co-presenter. I'm Louis-Michel Gelina, and I'm a DevOps team lead in the Game Online Operations team at Ubisoft Montreal. Special thanks to our, theme, to our teams. Montre Ubisoft is a leading entertainment and video game company, and Montreal is the industry's largest video game studio, home to brands like Assassin's Creed, Far Cry, Rainbow Six, and of course, For Honor. For Honor was a big milestone for Ubisoft, the first closed alpha for us, and the biggest open beta for Ubisoft with over six million players uh, joining. It's a third-person combat game which lets you experience visceral, the visceral thrill of melee combat. We're gonna watch a quick video to give you a feel of what this game is all about. Tribute is a 4v4 multiplayer objective game mode. As a tribute match begins, teams will race to grab the three offerings that are dispersed across the battlefield. Players will need to do whatever it takes to make their way back hastily to one of their team's three shrines with an offering in hand. Each shrine bestows a unique blessing on the whole team that is activated once an offering has been successfully claimed. Offensive buff, defensive buff, and awareness buff. Therefore, players may strategically choose which blessing to activate by placing an offering at the designated shrine. As the battle for the offerings heats up, players will fight opponents to steal or keep the offerings. Everything can change in an instant, making vigilance, speed, and communication your greatest skills. When your team successfully claims all three offerings, a countdown will begin and you will fight to defend your shrines. If you can outlast, victory is yours. Well, thankfully we have less frame rate problems uh, in the game than in that video. So um, today's talk uh, is all about the journey of Honor. We will uh, quickly touch on uh, how we define trailblazing and what trailblazing is and why we think you should try it out. We will touch on the core beliefs of Fauna and how it helped us uh, make that game happen. We will talk about when it makes sense to beautify for infra your infrastructure and when it really doesn't. And we will go a little bit more into a deep end when we talk about bridges and tunnels, all those moments where you have to do something a little bit more involved. So first, uh, the idea of trailblazing, it is in the beginning you know where you start and you have a rough idea of where you will end up. It might change, but you normally know. And the idea is to get there as fast as possible. For us, uh, we had that mantra of fail fast, but succeed consistently. So it means every time you do something, it should get you closer to your goal. Once in a while, stepping forward is good. Once in a while you hit a a roadblock, in that moment you have to fail fast, reconsider, step back, 
try something else. Sometimes what you try is a little bit more on the shaky side, but it gets you forward. So, and in the end, when you reach your goal, this is the moment where you look back and make like that trail into a highway because you know that you can reach actually your goal. So, for us, the other core beliefs we had, we already touched on fail fast and succeed consistently. Our other main goal was uh, the ease of development. That was the same for every other game team, but we used it for our online infrastructure as well. Because your developers are your first customers, so if it is painful for the, your developers to develop Mr. Stack, it will be hard to operate, and in the end, your customers will also not really enjoy it. Another goal for us was automation. That means you automate everything you do frequently. Don't necessarily automate things you do once. And for sure, don't automate experiments unless you have the tooling in, in place, for sure. Another main pillar for us was the use of managed infrastructure. For us, that means not only uh, that we use managed databases from AWS, we use ECS. It also means that uh, everything we run follows the idea of if it's not working correctly, don't get an admin involved, terminate the instance, respin, and bring it back up. Because that process is always faster than any time you can use to ping somebody to take a look. So for us, uh, when we started that process, our starting point or the beginning was that our team had limited cloud experience, but on the other hand, we still wanted to try something, to go into the cloud and benefit from all those elasticity and speed and all the other nice things. To give you a little bit of an idea of a timeline for us, uh, we were at that point in early 2014. To give a bit more of a timeline, ECS was announced in November of that same year, Kubernetes in July 2015, so we were a little bit ahead of the curve. And it was a prototype, so also because we were at that time a small proof of concept project, a new IP, we knew that we had only limited support from other Ubisoft teams, and we were somewhat in direct competition to already established uh, in-house technology. On top of that, we were a really small team. At that time, for online, we were kind of three people, and we were planning to build a stack and services. So you can tell it was an ambitious goal. So before we get a little bit deeper, I get hand over to Louis Michel again to show where we ended up. So this is a block diagram of what our production infrastructure looks like. I'm going to walk you through a few of the interactions. So first off, it always starts in the game clients, be it consoles or, or PCs. And uh, obviously, they talk to uh, subservices in the on-premise data center and also to some stuff in Amazon. So it usually hits the application load balancer, which will forward request to a front-end ECS cluster, eventually to the back-end ECS cluster, where it will most probably hit the Elastic Cache database and provide the answer back. We see also that the back-end services have some direct connections to the on-premise data center. They exchange uh, bits of data through there. And there are a bunch of other service support thing services. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I'm going to mention CloudFront. So uh, there's a 
some world state, and we'll get back to that later, that is served out of S3, but we actually put CloudFront in front for scaling reasons and also because we can control the SSL certificate when using CloudFront. Uh, in production, everything goes through the public internet, and we'll get back to that a bit later. So this is what we ended up with, but at first we had to get in shape. So as we said earlier, fail fast. So uh, we had a, a complete stack uh, built. We used the Play framework at first, which is a high-level web framework. We used Elastic Beanstalk, which is a highly managed Amazon service, and the Couchbase as a data layer. Provisioning was hmm, using a shell script. Now, it's obvious just looking at this that this will not do. You don't need to, there's no interesting code in there. It's just a big mess. Um, so once we had this, we revisited our pillars to see how we did. <clears throat> so the Play Framework was not a good fit to do services. It's really geared towards web services, and it didn't work well with what we needed. Elastic Beanstalk also did not work well with the needs of the framework we were using. And Couchbase, well, there was no managed offer for it in production, and running it on the dev's machine, the dev machines was not easy, so that was not a good fit for us. But we did fail fast and succeed consistently. We were using managed infrastructure, and we did have some automation. And I'll hand it back to Ralph. So our prototype for us was enough to get a clear go from uh, the, our production team and the group to go ahead at least and try to go into the cloud. But that time it was one and a half years before launch, about one year before we went into our open alpha, well, closed alpha. Uh, so for us, it was a little bit about risk management. So we didn't want to move every service onto that new stack, so we did choose at that time two non-mission critical ones. There was something we called player information enrichment, or short PI, which is a service which takes data coming from the player, augments it with other information we have about that player, and sends it off for further processing. And the other feature was our faction war. There is also the screenshot of how it looks in-game. It is... Uh, for Honor is all about the clash between our three factions, the Samurai, Vikings, and the Knights, and they fight in a world, and we model the world, so it is with each game a player plays, at the end they get warriors, they can deploy those barriers on a territory, and in regular intervals we do a check which faction deployed more of those warriors on a ter territory, and then this territory will be owned by that faction. So it's basically risk for those people which uh, play board games. Our other goals was um, that we wanted to minimize resources for development. That meant for us also that we couldn't block uh, development to wait for us to have all the tech up. So everything we do had to be able to run locally, the complete stack with all interactions between them. We spent some time uh, to make it possible to share resources, so you have to think about na uh, namespacing your databases so you can cram 100 environments onto one machine. On the other things for us, which was important, that our output for our build pipelines were Docker images. That means for us also, the only difference you have between UAT 
and prod is scale and uh, configuration. The code itself is always the same. So to give us a little bit of an idea, so we had multiple user acceptance testing environments. I think at our highest point, we reached something about like 150 of those. So there you can see that it's important that you can cram those things together or else uh, you will use a lot of infrastructure before you are already live. So for us, it was the start. This is where we really started our uh, trailblazing. So the goal was to reach a state which was shippable as fast as possible. So I don't know if other game companies use the same term for those things, a vertical slice, but it is what we had to achieve was an end-to-end working service which represents our final uh, infrastructure. So for us, we started by uh, provisioning what I call the macro infrastructure, so VPCs, ECS clusters, security groups, our Elastic Cache instances, Elasticsearch for logging. Those were defined as CloudFormation templates we had in source control, but they were applied manually, so somebody took that file from source control, uploaded it uh, onto, with the web, and then infrastructure was created. Not super sexy, but the fastest you can do in those moments. So we spent a little bit more time on those components which change frequently, so ECS tasks and services. They were managed for us using Python scripts, which at that point were emulating humans running AWS CLI commands, but it was the first step of automation because nobody had to go and type those things. So to see as a first step, we revisit our pillars. So are we better than in our um, prototype? We were going forward, so fail forces are good. Development was easy because everybody could run everything they needed locally. And we could also deploy it for people which didn't have to work on the service so that they can test the game. Our infrastructure was uh, completely managed. We didn't have any kind of server we had to manually keep alive. Databases were all Amazon offerings. ECS is also completely managed, so good there. Our problems at that moment was that our macro infrastructure was uh, manually set up, which generates in general like a certain amount of fear-driven opposition to change anything, because nobody can be sure that there was no manual step involved so that what you had in source control diverged from what is really there. And if somebody did a manual uh, change, it was completely untracked. So their automation is still a little bit shaky. We, uh, had our ECS tasks and service management in Python scripts. Worked pretty well as long as everything is good. The problem you run into, like the moment you run into a problem, you leave the golden path. Your roadblock steps are less tested, so you don't know if you can actually recover from a failure deployment, so we know that we had to also work on this one. But it's actually the place where we managed to ship this, mostly. So we spent a little bit more time on formal stack which works to a stack which is operatable because there's a certain amount of difference. So for us, it means we spent a good six months of time on getting monitoring and alerting in. 
For us, uh, our stack was JVM-based. So if you want to operate a JVM stack, it's really important to have JMX uh, metrics per container so that you know what is my garbage collection doing? Am I running out of memory? So for this, uh, for us, Datadog was a perfect choice because of the business model, because we had a lot of tightly crammed containers on hardware. Also, uh, graphing is very elegant in uh, Datadog. There's a li little bit of a screenshot. You can't read it, but nice graphs. Um, alerting also works very well. For us, we were able to um, connect our normal uh, monitoring and alerting from our Ubisoft group with Datadog. So that means that we didn't have to manage a second stack of uh, people watching infrastructure. It could be all be done by our service center. And naturally, uh, load tests to see the services we are writing, what kind of hardware do we need, how does it behave under load. This is a step which always takes longer than anybody expects. And last but not least, uh, defining key KPIs to see what's going on in your infrastructure. For us, we relatively soon noticed that there's kind of two kinds of KPIs. Some, I always say, like, they are a little bit too late. So for example, a container death rate already means you have a problem, same thing for error rates on ALBs. But at least you know something is wrong. They are normally easier to get. Other things for us, uh, as an early warning system is application metrics, but it takes more time to write them. And surprisingly, actually, um, log rates, the moment your system starts to go a little bit out of whack, it has a tendency to spew a lot more logs, so you can use this as an early warning and try to intervene before it all blows up. So, like I said, it's pretty much what we ship with, so I will hand over to Lou Michel again. So at this point, we had our trail. Now it was time to move on to make it a highway so we could make it happen. And we're going to go through a few of the quirks, and we call them bridges and tunnels. So a few of the quirks we did. This is a, a bit more technical part of the presentation. So first off, ECS boot 101. So an ECS instance, it lives in a VPC, and you have auto-scaling groups that define how many instances you want in there. And in, in your auto-scaling groups, you have instances. And within those, you actually configure and run the ECS agent. And then they join the cluster, and they can start doing some work. Now, if anything, so when they boot, they, uh, we first we start off by uh, we take vanilla uh, ECS optimized uh, AMIs from Amazon. And we install a few tools, namely AWS CLI and JQ. We get some instance details and the metadata, and register the instance in OpsWorks, and configure and start the ECS agent. Now, if anything of the above fails, you end up with a bad instance. So we have loops of retries and, and timeouts. And after five minutes, they auto-terminate. The hope here is that the auto-scaling group will notice that the instance is gone and will spin up a new one that will work. What would fail was the actual RIAM install step. So it would kick in too early, and the network wasn't ready. This, this didn't ha doesn't happen much anymore, but still, it can happen from time to time. So what we do is we actually scan clusters periodically. 
we look at the Eto scaling group, how many distances it wants to have, and how many are in the associated DCS cluster. If the count doesn't match, it means one instance just didn't join a cluster and you need to intervene because it, the uh, autoscaling group will not provision a new one. So if, yeah, you can run out of instances that way. It doesn't happen much and uh, this is a manual intervention thing. Next up is, we said earlier, Ralph said we want uh, production to, we want everything to be mostly like production. Unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't make sense. In UAT, we had hundreds of ECS services in hundreds of, of environments. And so it's not the same as on prod where we have only a few services on, on a few static environments. Um, in production, we use ALBs at the front end, but because we're in a VPN, VPC in UAT, we have a limited IP count and ALBs tend to be IP hungry. So we invented uh, HAProxy Route 53 little trick that we're gonna look in uh, more details in the next slide or two. So these only support a single node serving requests and they do, and they, they do, it does involve a bit of deployment latency before everything converges. <clears throat> so having 600 ALBs just could not happen. So the HAProxy container running on every instance, and that's what OpsWorks does for us. It actually provisions the service containers, stuff we want on every instance. So it scans the instance for running services. Every, anything new that appears, it will update the Route 53 entry to direct traffic to itself and update the local HAProxy config so that the HAProxy will route the traffic to the proper container. It looks like this, nothing really interesting here. Uh, it does the SSL offloading, and you see there's one uh, section per running container. You can see it routes it to the container IP using uh, classical host uh, header routing. And Ralph is gonna explain how we patch our instances. Yeah, yeah for us, I mean, the slides has security updates, but there is a multitude of reasons why you want to take one of your EC2 instances out of rotation and replace it with something new. For example, you want to change the AMI, you want to use a, a newer version of CECS agent, security patches, different instance sizes, so all that fun you want to do, and you want to do this without impacting your users at the same time. So uh, we started to look what can we do. And this is a little bit the moment when you realize that ECS doesn't have all those parts out of the box. So for us, uh, we filled that hole with a selection of lambdas. So the idea is when uh, CloudFormation triggers an update on an autoscaling cluster, what happens is a new instance spins up and all our instances have lifecycle hooks on them and we also notify with an SNS message that an instance is now set to terminate. So when an instance is set to termination, it fires off this message. We, have a, we invoke a Lambda function, which after gathering some information about the instance which is going to terminate, uh, sets ECS inst like the ECS instance, which is bound to that EC2 machine, to uh, draining. Draining is uh, a state ECS has Sadly, there is no drained state, so you can start the process of draining, and draining means there will not be any more containers scheduled on that machine, and existing containers are scheduled to move 
to other places if you have the room, which hopefully you do because there's a new instance there. So I mentioned there is no drain state. So for us, the only way we have to do is periodically pull that instance to see are all the containers gone. So the Lambda reinvokes itself, checks the instance, checks the instance again, and when all the containers are gone, we complete the lifecycle hook, which then lets that uh, instance die, and the process starts with the next instance. So pretty much that repeats until you are done. A few things we figured out uh, is really that in general, when there's a hole in like an offering from AWS, quite frequently you can fill it with a Lambda. It's also important that you tag your instance with some meaningful tags because it can help you like, figure out what the instance is which currently is draining. Another very inf uh, important thing we found out was that it makes sense to sleep your Lambda before re-invoking yourself. You will pay for the time it's just sitting around doing nothing, but it's significantly better than going into a tight loop and uh, getting throttled. It actually happened to us at one point when we had the great idea from at the same time, change the AMI, move to a bigger instance, and remove half of our instances. And CloudFormation went ahead and as a first step terminated half of our instances and then couldn't reschedule all the containers. So our normal draining process didn't last 20 minutes but was doing things for four hours because the API got throttled in between and everything worked once in a while. Also, uh, that complete process for us, it came from a blog post. I posted the link on there, so if somebody wants to take a look on this one, it's where our Lambda came from. I think this one doesn't sleep, so keep that in mind when you reprogram that. And another thing we found out is that it's quite frequently, if you have to do a lot of calls to gather information in, in your Lambda, try considering collecting them once, put them into your SNS message for the next invocation so you save on making calls the next time. So I will give the clicker back. So we mentioned uh, CloudFormation stacks at the beginning, so that those were all manually uploaded and parameterized, and that was scary because we didn't really know what was going on at any given time. So we improved on this part by uh, using GitLab CI jobs. So we actually have these scripts that detect the changes and we'll push them out to, uh, AW, to uh, CloudFormation. So we now can use familiar software development concepts like ZIFs and merges to make sure what the changes are. And they're not templates, they're actually complete uh, CloudFormation stacks. So uh, now, what, you, what this means, however, is that you need to stage your changes because you never know what, uh, what CloudFormation will do to your, your infrastructure. So you want to be able to practice these changes in some non-critical environment as close as possible to your production one or to your target environment. And so you know how it behaves. And when you actually merge that ZIF in the production stack, you're pretty confident, well, completely confident it will do the right thing. The same... <clears throat> The same uh, principle also applies to uh, the the, what was uh, Python code manipulating ECS tasks and services. So the same here. However, the Python code actually generates 
the stack from configs held in another system and generates the new desired state and pushes, pushes that to CloudFormation and you get nice features like free rollbacks and a bunch of other cool things that CloudFormation will check for you. So I mentioned a bit earlier the, the difference between UAT and prod. Um, on UAT, the on-premise endpoints are not on the public internet, so you ju can't just get to them. So we use the, there are two ways to get around that. The one we used was the VPN, so we're actually an extension of the Ubisoft uh, IP range, so we can reach our uh, on-prem endpoints. Some of the downsides is that the VPNs can flap and they need to be monitored, and also you don't want to push some high traffic through those because you never know what can happen. Also, we had to do a few special tricks to the host instances and containers to make them look up DNS entries uh, to the on-premise DNS servers because these are hosted in private domains. But everything goes through the VPC, and this works for us. The alternative to this setup is to use proxies. So you just put a standard web proxy and redirect your containers to those. Uh, you, do need to you do need to attach uh, elastic IPs to those proxies and whitelist them in the corporate firewall. This is known to work, to work in other projects, so that's a setup that can work. Uh, for production, we don't have this problem because we're just using the public endpoints on the internet. Just to complete this, this is the similar block diagram as the one we saw at first. You notice game clients this time are actually in the on-premise. Well, they're not in the data center, but they're like inside. And uh, traffic goes through the VPN tunnel to the HA proxy Route 53 setup, and the rest is mostly the same. One detail, one interesting detail is we run like 100 or 150 environments on one Elasticash server in UAT, whereas in prod we have five or six. So, once we did all these bridges and tunnels, we looked back and then we were happy. We failed fast, we succeeded consistently. We had our developers that were happy, they could run the whole stack, and our testers could have, each of every, and every one of them could have their separate environment. That's how we ended up with 150 different UAT environments. We used managed infrastructure for stuff we didn't want to care about, like Elastic Cache and Elastic Search. And we pretty much nailed the automation part. So now we had our nice highway. Lessons learned. <clears throat> Everything manual is a risk. Just know about that. And there, then again, there's a break-even point of automation. And it changes over time. As you saw, we shipped with something somewhat fragile and somewhat manual. Still, that was the right choice at the time because we had to ship. You need to validate all the changes in non-critical but identical setups. CloudFormation can have a mind of its own. You never know what it's going to do. It can be scary to do these things, but if you can practice in a somewhat identical setup to your target environment, then you're good. When we modify some UAT environment, we actually spin up a new one and mess around and try to change because we know all UATs are, are pretty similar. And we actually have a staging one for production, which has all the bells and whistles and ALBs and, and whatnot. Service containers are hard to manage. We used Opsworks for that. I know there are solutions now in ECS, but still it, it can be somewhat troublesome to make sure you have exactly one of those HA proxy containers running on each and every instance. 
Another good uh, lesson learned is uh, sometimes there are surprising gaps in the AWS offering, but Lambdas can duct tape a lot of stuff together and it generally really works well. We didn't cover it very, very much in detail, but we actually have a similar setup to what we had for cloud formations where we manage Lambdas in, in, CI, in a CI CD manner um, with scripts because you, you, otherwise you end up with a bunch of Lambdas with hooks and configs and you don't know which ones pertain to what and, and it can get messy. So again, CloudFormation is your friend, tooling, CI CD principles will help you. And of course, use managed services. You don't want to deal with Elasticsearch or Elastic Cache or all those other things. So leverage what AWS has to give you. Hopefully, you guys have a few questions. <laughs>